are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. Brendan here, alongside of... Skylar. And uh, got another episode coming your way... Oh, yeah. ...today. What is this? Episode 22? 23? 22, I think. I don't even know where we're at. Yeah. Moving right along. We are. Big one today. I'm, uh... I, I'm the one who consistently has my doubts that we're going to get 52 episodes in, but <laughs> Skylar is set and determined. I, I am. Every week this year, we're, we're making it happen. I was skipping ahead, though, today, looking at the Come Follow Me curriculum for, like, the epistles and stuff. Oh, boy. And, man, it's, like, just uh, gross under <laughs> under <laughs> under coverage of the topics. Yeah. It's, like... I don't know. It's going to be rough. Mm-hmm. You know, like cover, cover Galatians in one week. You know what I mean? Yep. I think what? Romans. Yeah, Romans gets two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, man, we need we need more time in Romans with, with how many changes mm-hmm. old Joseph made, according to what we were just talking about. For sure. Yeah, over a thousand, yeah. There, three weeks on Revelation. Yeah. Isn't Two weeks in Romans, yeah. priorities, right? Yeah. Of course, well, I mean, be a lot, a, of, year a lot of evangelicals too. that would do that, right. you know. Yeah. Evangelic, a lot of evangelicals give about 10 years to Revelation. <laughs> Two weeks to <laughs> Romans. <laughs> yeah. Not Sk- many. Not many. Yeah. Skip Galatians. Yeah. Skip no, Hebrews. They, they'd actually probably read the Left Behind series before oh, they'd read no. Revelation. So. Did you see the movie when it came out? I did. Yeah, the Kurt Cameron one. Yeah, which he's like post mill now. He's is he really? Oh yeah, he's he's part he's of the Anonymous. Fad. Oh yeah. yeah, it's just I, funny because yeah. he was like the poster boy for that kind of radical, mm-hmm. you know, pre millennial dispensational view. Yeah, and now he's now he's not opposite end of the spectrum. Interesting. Well, I would say that's an improvement, but I. Uh, did you ever hear the book Fundamentalism in American Culture by George Marsden? Nope. It is so fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's one of those that it takes more than one read. But he documents the shift from post-mill to pre-mill huh. in American culture. Back to post-mill. Well, that I was that's yeah. the joke, yeah. The, the, that, yeah. Is he, the, the next final chapter is when written. it flips back that's again. Right. That's right. But uh, it's, it's fascinating, his treatment of how post-millennialism stayed among the old Protestant clergy but with like this kind of Darwinian framing. Yeah. So if you read Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was theological in his criticism of the U.S. Constitution, he was a post-millennialist. There you go. You know, and then you just transform the gospel into democracy or whatever, and it becomes about conquering the world Mm. with democracy and equality or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, hey, Woodrow, uh, could you, you know, change yourself? Yeah. That's hard enough. You're going to change the world? Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know where they get this optimism. I just don't. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yep. It's something. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You ready for this? We will find out. Why, why do we here. talk about that? Well, because yes. the main topic <laughs> of the lesson today is the end second times. Coming. Second coming. Yep. The second coming. And boy, this is an important one to cover because how often is it that people go wrong on this point? Because they yep. they uh, 
don't rightly interpret or they become too radical and extreme, you know, or, or even like non-Christian uh, apocalyptic movements. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for people to make declarations that are meant to drive people toward a sort of fear in order to manipulate them into doing what you want them to do, mm-hmm. right? I, and I know that's a very negative way of looking at it, but... No, I agree. I mean, what, what are, how do the news media today make their money from, yep. from you know, preying upon our fears? Mm-hmm. And many people have used end times and apocalyptic sort of things for their own selfish gain. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at a lot of these break-off movements from evangelical Christianity... Uh, many of them, this was one of the fundamental marks, was a very particular in-time uh, declaration of how things were going to go. And so get on board with our movement in order to ensure that you're going to be okay when that happens, right? right. I mean, get the same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. and various Christian science and, you know, all, all of them. This is where they... Get, get off. And, you know, let's just be honest up front, too. There have been a lot of evangelical Christians that oh, yeah. have become overly obsessed with this sort of a thing to their detriment. It, to, to the church's detriment. Yeah, and yep. the church's they detriment. They brought shame on the church. Yeah, and it's not that it's obviously wrong to think about these things. No. But... Uh, it's the we, priority. Yeah, we got to prioritize this rightly. Um, William and, Miller's a good example of that, right? The Millerites. Um, and... Uh, all the damage that that's done to this day. Yeah. Just like Bible code, you know, connect the dots between the headlines and symbol shopping. The beast is this, and the image of the beast is that. You know, it's, I, 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 there is a cottage industry of books, including Mormon ones on this, where the beast is Marx, and the image of the beast is socialism, and, you know, and it always shifts. It always shifts with you. Oh, it's Hitler. Oh, it's communism. Oh, it's Obama and the UN. Or yeah, I don't know. It's 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 wacky stuff. It's wacky yeah. stuff. I bet that door slam came in on the podcast. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me start us off by reading from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, and I read this because I want to give a clear articulation of what Christians should say on the last things and the last judgment in particular. Uh, in order that we would know perhaps what we should not be so radical about as well. So uh, there's three paragraphs here, and I just want to read all of them to get us going. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ, to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect, and of his justice and the eternal damnation of the reprobate, who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin 
and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have the day unknown to men, that they shall shake off all carnal security and be always watchful, because they know not at what hour the Lord will come, and may ever be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Erkutaku Kurie. Come quickly, Lord. That's it. So yeah. that's that is a good uh, evangelical credo Christian um, articulation of what mm-hmm. Christians should say yes. on the last days. Now, aside from that, some of these passages of Scripture are the most debated passages of Scripture within credo Christianity, and uh, you know we don't shy away from that. That's why we differentiate between what we call primary doctrines, secondary doctrines, and tertiary doctrines because the tertiary doctrines in the Bible are the ones that are the least clear. But the things that need to be clear are abundantly clear, yeah. and we trust that, and we, we're confident in that. And so we can develop theological statements like the one I just read that every critical Christian ought to be able to affirm and say, yes, I believe that. Jesus is going to come. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He is returning. His return is going to be in his bodily resurrected body. He'll come and judge the living and the dead, as as already said, and uh, and because of that fact, every Christian ought to be watchful for his second coming. Yeah. But there's a way in which we ought to be watchful, and that's to not become overly obsessive. That's not to become lazy in the things that we're doing. It's to continue laboring diligently for the glory of God, looking out for his return, having hearts that yearn, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. In the midst of every sorrow, in the midst of every trial and difficulty, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. In the midst of every joy, all those glorious moments, every satisfaction that we have in this life, we still look and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, because your coming is going to be far better than anything that we are now experiencing in this fallen world. So we anticipate that day. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. But the details of how that's going to occur are controversial, Mm -hmm. to to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the passages of Scripture are just not as clear on these particular issues. And some of those passages are the ones that we're covering today. So let's go ahead and get into that. I'll cover the curriculum very quickly. Yeah, yeah, just really quick. Also, the genre of Scripture. This is something that I think a mill, a millennialist, and post-millennialist will do a little better job of, Mm -hmm. and that is recognizing the genre of apocalyptic and just really quickly for listeners, right? Eschatology is the study of end things. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it can be goal or where things are going, but it's end times, end things. Apocalyptic, we often kind of treat apocalyptic as if it's eschatology, but what it is is an unveiling. It's a revealing. That's why it's called the book of Revelation. But in, I think in most other languages, it's the, um, the apocalypse of John right? The unveiling of truth. And by the way, it's the revelation of what? Jesus Christ. So if you're off on like the UN and this and that and Henry Kissinger and whatever, and you're not talking about Jesus Christ as the main point of the book of Revelation, you took a wrong tone at Albuquerque, right? I mean, you're you're not dealing with the text as it is. Mm -hmm. And I think genre consideration is one of the main reasons people go wrong, including this kind of curriculum as watered down as it is. Yeah. Be, be a little more clear on what you mean by genre consideration, because that's a whole interpretive, uh, I'm an important way yeah, yeah. of thinking from our perspective, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, what What is the type of text we're dealing with? Mm-hmm. 
So, um, and that matters because you interpret the text mm-hmm. according to its genre. Exactly. We, we all know this in a practical way. Mm-hmm. You don't interpret poetry the same way the that same you way. interpret directions written down on a napkin. Exactly. To get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think just how we speak should be, you know, if I'm trying to tell you a chronological occurrence of my day, that's different than me reading a poem I've worked on about, I don't know, uh, uh, some uh, Glacier National Park or something, right? So, you know, the way we use language isn't a a flat, unidimensional thing. Um, Often there's uh, not just different ways of speaking, there's different types of speaking above that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, there's context clues that we just assume as people right, that um, sometimes need to be stated more clearly, especially thousands of years removed. Yeah. In other words, this genre would have been more recognizable in the ancient world Yep. It, it, than, than it is for us. Um, it, though it hasn't gone away. Like, humans are still attracted to, you know, 1980, we even talked about what, 1984 Brave New World. There is this kind of apocalyptic imagination in the West. Mm-hmm. But in the ancient world, like if you, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, we find the War Scroll, and it's the same genre as the book of Revelation. And it's not to be interpreted the same way as, I don't know, the Damascus document or uh, Leviticus or yeah. something like that. There might be dimensions where they interrelate, mm-hmm. but it's not the same genre. Yep, that's right. Okay, so uh, just quick overview of the curriculum. Basi- we basically have just three major sections this week. And the first one is from Joseph Smith. Matthew 1. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's, it's not from Matthew 1. No. It's from Joseph Smith, Matthew 1, 21 to 37, which is a uh, retranslation, uh, if you want to call it that, by Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. And it is located in the Pearl of Great Price, but it is effectively Joseph Smith's reworking of Matthew 24. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's the subtitle here. Prophecies about the Savior's second coming can help us face the future with faith. Signs, and this is the text, signs of the Savior's second coming may be difficult for some class members to understand. It might help to work in groups to identify the signs that we find in Joseph Smith's Matthew 1, 21 to 37. Uh, it might help them better understand the importance of signs if they compare them to road signs. How do we know road signs are important? Why are they important? So on and so forth. But anyways, what, what are the signs that are included in the text? And you know how, how can we learn from these signs so that we can face the future with faith? It's hard to identify exactly what point they're trying to make there uh, from the text. But anyways, yeah. that's uh, that's the... The gist of that one. And then the next subsection, they want us to read from Joseph Smith, Matthew 1. Uh, same, again, from uh, Joseph Smith's retranslation of this stuff. But this one's just focusing on verse 26 to 27 and 38 to 55. And then they want us to also interact with Matthew 25 from our Bibles, um, verses 1 to 13. And that is the uh, parable of the ten virgins there. So... Um, if you're not familiar with that particular story, because it's not perhaps one of the more popular ones, it is a story uh, where there are 10 virgins, they take their lamps, and, uh, well, let me just read it real quick. 
know what? Let's just skip ahead. We'll read it when we come back to it. But in any case, the subtitle there, we must always be ready for the Savior's second coming. So it's just the, the parable does give the gist of being ready for when the Savior is going to return. And so that's subtitled there. And uh, it says, as you learn about the Savior's return, you might also read and sing together the hymns about the second coming, so on and so forth. Okay, the fat last section is the parable of the talents, which just quickly, that is the parable of the three servants who the master gives each of them a certain number of talents and says, I'm going to go away, you know, be faithful with these talents. And two of the servants multiply the talents by investing them. One of the servants buries it in the dirt. And when the master comes back, he's pleased with the first two servants and not so much with the final servant. So the subtitle here is at the final judgment, we will give the Lord an account of our lives. The parable of the towns and the parable of the sheep and the goats can inspire us. Oh yeah, I should mention that it also goes on to the parable of the sheep and the goats where there's the uh, master who separates the sheep from the goats on the last day. Uh, the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats can inspire us. Think about the account of our lives we will give to the Lord on the final judgment. You might read the parables together and invite the class members to share one question the Savior might ask about their lives when we are judged. Provide time for class members to plan ways they will act on impressions they have received during the discussion. All right, so that's pretty much the gist of it right there. And uh, there is a final additional resource that is uh, David Bedner interacting with the the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, yeah, he gives a an interpretation of what the oil is and that in that particular. So it will probably come back to that. Okay. Let's jump back to the, the JS, JST, which again, I, do you, what did you, we talked about this some before. Do you still call it the JST if it's in the Pearl of Great Price or is it? Well, yeah. I mean, how's that work? It's, it's kind of complicated. Functionally the same thing, but it is right. It's just long enough extract with enough changes that they put it in the section of the Pearl Great Price under the writings of Joseph Smith, which that's an honest title. I wish they had kept that. It's the writings of Joseph Smith. Yep. Um, but then it says an extract from a translation of the Bible, right? Yep. And he's just reworking the KJV. Um, so, there, yeah, we've talked a little bit about the JST before. Um, for those who don't know, Joseph Smith, pretty soon after... Um, the Book of Mormon and the founding of the LDS Church uh, started working on this quote-unquote translation. But is it based on ancient languages? No, he doesn't know them. And in fact, for those who will say, well, he studied Hebrew later. Um, uh, it wasn't then that we know he was working on it, though he, he constantly is kind of reworking this thing. But we know June 1830, he started with the Old Testament. And then, yeah, there are there are lengthy extracts that become part of the Pearl of Great Price, like the Book of Moses was supposedly a reworking of, or re, a restoring of uh, Genesis, yeah. how, how it should have read before the evil Jews and Christians changed mm -hmm. the text. Um, now, keep in mind, like, more recent scholarship, like, textual criticism has not vindicated this thing as actually restoring ancient texts at all. Right. Um so it, there's not textual support historically that he's restoring actual textual material. But yep. David Ridges still talks about it that way, and several do. That's definitely the impression people get, yeah. is that Joseph Smith is fixing 
the Bible. Um, it's really a pretty embarrassing yeah. fact if you think about it, because the field of textual criticism has continued to grow right. in a way that we would say from our perspective is favorable, because right. as we get more manuscripts, get better computer software and technology in order to compile all of the different variants and try to determine what is the, the, uh, what, what did the text actually say? Um, we're getting more and more accuracy from our Bibles, which by the way, it was already, I mean, even as we gain all this new technology, we're finding it was already remarkably well done, but, uh, yeah, it's just, again, there, there's no evidence that anything needs to be restored. So right. it's, you know, it's again, yeah. it's what we run into a lot with the, the LDS system is there's just not anything to really back up the claims. Right. Right. In, in terms of any sort of scholarly approach, yeah, they hyper spiritualize and kind of compartmentalized this view, their, their view of religious things. So once that goes away, that's why it just decays into unbelief. Yep. Um, and and it, I mean, this is this is the difference, right? If do we admit imperfections in the English text as we have it? Yes. But what are the means we go about trying to improve the translations and transmissions we have? That would be uh, that would be scholarly, right? Through original languages more archaeologically discoveries, things like that, or better reading of readings we have in the Church Fathers and other things like that. Mm-hmm. So, but for them, it's not that. They think Smith is not doing that, right? He's just literally changing the English words. He's mending it by, quote-unquote, revelation. He feels authority to change the text. Yeah and improve the text. It's almost like I'm getting this revealed system of truth. Well, the Bible's true, right? So which which has to give way? Yeah. If you have a completely different worldview than the Bible, but the Bible is true, but you know this is true, which which has to change? So, so what did he start doing? Well, he had a KJV with the Apocrypha, and just we have hundreds of sheets of paper. This is what we have as his... JST, which once again, is it a translation? No, not if by translation you mean what everybody understands that word to mean, going from one language to another. So how do we get from there where Joseph Smith literally is saying the KJV is inherently flawed and must be improved by revelation and additional revelations and personal revelations like with patriarchal blessings and whatever else? And the the experience of revelation, even how do we get from there to an LDS church that's pretty firm as the KJV, as the official uh, version? Yeah. Um, well, th- this is some this is a, some additional material from the last time we talked about it. In 1867, the RLDS church. So we remember when Brigham Young took a huge portion of the Latter Day Saints to you know, Salt Lake, what is now Salt Lake, a lot of people stayed behind. And it's, you know, there were Mormon communities that weren't under Brigham Young's authority, actually in many states. Um, but Emma stayed behind. She's the more famous person, of course, in all this. But the RLDS Church, the Reorganized Latter-day Saint Church, in 1867 published the Holy Scriptures. And what it was was the KJV, but with all the Joseph Smith changes. And what ended up happening out of that is 
Um, though Orson Pratt was enthusiastic about it, um, there's still this rivalry, right, between the Brighamites and the Josephites. So that that's literally what they, they're called. I know Bruce R. McConkie took uh, exception to these, this, but that's what we call them. You And you literally had Mormons, these two churches, sending missionaries to the other Mormons. <laughs> that interesting? But what made Salt Lake stand out, of course, was polygamy, which we'll get to when we get to predictions of the second coming. So what, what ended up happening is because of the rivalry between uh, Brigham Young and Emma and all that, um, when copies began to be sold in Utah, a lot of LDS leaders started to speak out against it, including a school of prophets here in Provo. Yeah. You literally had the school of prophets speaking out, being like, oh, the KJV is good enough. Mm. You know? So this is the ironic beginning to the the conscious stress in the LDS community right. on the KJV was yes. in response to the RLDS actually publishing Joseph Smith's so-called wow. translation. And and so in, and you gotta keep in mind in the broader American context as well, the KJV was often a tool by Protestants mm. to forcibly attack, uh, at least culturally, Roman Catholicism. It just has to be said. And so even um, George Q. Cannon has some quote about the KJV uh, that was aimed at Rome. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking, this was even, even, there were even laws going on trying to force Roman Catholic children into public schools to force them to use the KJV. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, you just can't, can't believe the kind of stuff that was going on. But that's going on generally. I'm, I'm going to skip some of that. But just a lot of people, the position was the KJV is what they're used to. Obviously, a lot of the Book of Mormon and stuff sounds KJV-ish. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was seen as preferred but not required. So how do we get to where it's the official version? Um, well, in the 1950s, try to make this quick. Yeah. 1950s, you had a very important general authority. Our Christian, uh, Christian listeners should who know this name. Yep. J. Reuben Clark. This dude was in the first presidency from 1933 to 1961. Mm. I mean, this guy, there were just groups that wanted him to run for president. He was in D.C. He was an ambassador. He was an undersecretary of state. He wrote, I mean, the BYU Law School is named after him. And, of course, he had mixed, he's a mixed bag politically, whatever. I'm not trying to get into that. But he got very much into... Um, the literature that was opposing a new modern translation called the Revised Standard Version, the RSV, in 1952. And I don't know if you've encountered this with KJV onlyists or TR onlyists, conspiracies about who these men were, are they trying to liberalize the Bible to attack the faith, all that stuff. Well, J. J. Ruben Clark took on a lot of this information and then wrote a very influential book. Um, defending the KJV in 1956. Why the KJV? Um, now, of course, the, the leadership was kind of mixed on it, right? David O. McKay was like, oh, I don't know about this. Mm -hmm. David O. McKay was the president of the church at the time. Um, but J. Reuben Clark basically made the comment to him, well, would you want to see Shakespeare radically changed? He said, no. Okay, yeah. you can publish the book. Yeah. So it had this kind of quasi-official status. And, uh, I mean, he's using a lot of the stock arguments but he made some unique ones so for example he compared the jst the joseph smith translation so using the jst to compare it with the rsv and he said well smell joseph smith's um fixing of the bible aligns most closely with the kjv therefore the kjv should be the only translation we use yeah 
It's stuff like that, right? That's what I would have assumed they would argue, honestly. <laughs> but you see the irony of that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The reason they were using the KJV was yeah. to get away from the yeah. GST. Yeah. Because Brigham Young's like, well, they must have changed it and whatever. You know, Brigham Young was so jealous of his power when it came to Mormons that were under him. Mm. I mean, he was so paranoid about it. That's why he opposed yeah. the uh, Lucy Mack Smith autobiography. Any narrative that got in the way of the narrative he needed to secure power, yeah. he was opposed. And that's, that led to some of the comments about the JST. Now, um, in, of course, Jerry McClark was a brilliant dude. What, agree with him or not, he, he made some TR-only stuff. And then, of course, the classic linguistic superiority argument, which basically means I like it. Um, well, that led to the point where in 1979, so in, I should say in 1972, you had a different president of the church named Harold B. Lee that started the committee to get the quad as I have it here. This is my missionary quad. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so 1979, you had an official LDS edition of the KJV in here. Notice they don't do the Holy Scriptures the way the RLDS did, but it includes all the footnotes and includes Joseph Smith Matthew and stuff like that. Um, and it's interesting. The committee was established and had pretty free reign, but there was one requirement. It must include an unaltered text of the KJV. So that's where we are today, right? Where the KJV is the English language Bible used by the Church of Jesus Christ in the English-speaking part of it. Yep. And um, so there's some history for you, some ironic. Yeah. There is a KJV-onlyism to LDSism that mm. I think a lot of Christians will understand. That's just weird to them, right? Yeah. All this progressive revelation and things can change and yeah. God's a God of surprises and all that, yeah. but they have the KJV. Yeah. It's just so interesting. And it has to be the KJV. Right. And you can't change that. Right. But Joseph Smith can. <laughs> but Joseph Smith could. Yeah. And, and right. They don't see the, the irony there. Yep, yep. So... Let me just give a little bit of an evangelical Christian thought on this. And, uh, you know, I don't know that we've even brought up this particular concept before on the podcast yet, but uh, I just want to make some brief comments in light of this um, so that listeners know how evangelical Christians think when it comes to the scriptures. And so we, we would hold to a doctrine of what we would call the sufficiency of scripture. And by sufficiency of scripture, we mean that essentially God has given us uh, his word, such that we have all that we need, it, all of the divine words that we need in order to live unto him. So uh, John Frame, one theologian, there's lots of theologians that define sufficiency, sufficiency very well, but he says, Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. And one of the things that Frame does a good job of is even in the, giving the negative element in this, which is that uh, there, there's not only everything that we need from a positive perspective to live, but there is also very strict warnings given to um, anybody who would seek to add to or change the words that God has given. So sufficiency doesn't just mean we have everything we need in the positive sense. It also means we have everything need we need in in a negative sense. You'd better not change it. If you change it, you're you're walking on dangerous ground. And so here's the idea from and from a credo Christian perspective: God has given us His Word. He gives us His Word through uh, particular authors in a written document. And that written document you could consider to be a sort of covenantal document that God has given to His people that is binding upon His people. 
uh, for us to know how we're to rightly live unto him. And so to change that document is to tamper with the word of God. And so, you know, commonly we will use the uh, final passage in the Bible, right, to point out to um, LDS people. And I mean, you know, the arguments that they give against this, but just listen to this from Revelation 22, starting in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book in of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Okay. So, of course, one of the arguments, whenever we bring that passage up, you better not add to the scriptures. One of the arguments all these people say, well, that was just, you know, John and Revelation, right? Well, okay. Well, let's ask the question, and then did Joseph Smith change anything in the book of Revelation? Yes. Yes, he did. So he's already violated that, which means that the the plagues, the curses, the covenantal curses are placed upon him. But, you know, I think there is an argument you can make of this being really, a, you know, the, the last book. I think John would even had some sort of knowledge that all the other apostles have died off. You know, and, and so where is he getting this sort of idea? Of course, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but where is he getting this idea of anybody who adds to this is going to have curses placed upon them? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy 4 and see what's going on in Deuteronomy 4, which, of course, this would have been uh, one of the central um, documents that would have been held to and loved by all Jews and Christians alike. But in Deuteronomy 4, too, you see God say, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Here's what's going on. The Bible really is a covenantal document. In other words, it's a document in which God is articulating his covenant standards to his people so that we know how we are to rightly live unto him. To change his document that he's given to us uh, is to effectively slap him in the face and say your word to us wasn't good enough. We had to we had to change it. And so I, I just want the gravity of this to land upon people to notice what Joseph Smith is doing in making these claims that the word of God was not sufficient and that it needed to be changed. And so I'm going to read a little more than I normally read here from John Frame just so that we get uh, get get this said a little better than I'm saying it right now. But listen to what Frame says here. He says, as we've seen. The covenant document, and of course he's referring to the scriptures, contains an inscriptional curse, forbidding adding and subtracting. This is to say that God alone is to rule his people, and he will not share that rule with anyone else. If a human being presumes to add his own word to a book of divinely authoritative words, he thereby claims that his words have the authority of God himself. He claims, in effect, that he shares God's throne Oh, that's pretty audacious. Except you've got someone like Joseph Smith saying that he did more for God than it, even Jesus Christ did, right? So, right. of course, of course he the has church, the audacity yeah. to say that he shares God's throne. He Never, was very confident. Yep. <laughs> Nevertheless, through the history of Israel, some did have the audacity to set their words against God, alongside God's. False prophets claimed to speak in God's name. When God had not spoken to them, look at 1 Kings 13, 18, and 22, 5 to 12, a crime that deserved the death penalty, according to Deuteronomy 18, 20. 
and the people worshiped according to human commandments rather than God's. Now listen to Isaiah 29, 13 to 14. This is God addressing this tendency towards his people to depart from his covenantal words. And the Lord said, because this, this is Isaiah 29, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, it's not a commandment taught by him. They're following a commandment taught by man, by a man. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their of the their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Jesus applies Isaiah's words to the Pharisees and adds, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's in Mark 7 8. And it is likely that some people in Paul's time wrote forged, wrote letters forged in Paul's name, claiming his authority for their own ideas. I'm almost done here. One more paragraph. God's own representatives, however, fearlessly set God's word against all merely human viewpoints. Think of Moses before Pharaoh, Elijah before Ahab, Isaiah before Ahaz, Jonah before Nineveh, Paul before Agrippa, Felix and Festus. Consider Jesus, who spoke with the same boldness before the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Herod, and Pilate. Those who are armed with God's word, the sword of the Spirit, are free from the tyranny of human opinion. That's what we mean when we're talking about sufficiency, is that God has given us a word, and we don't need to add to it because his word is sufficient as he has provided it to us. And so add to that the fact that you know Joseph Smith is making these claims that these things had to be restored and there's no textual critical uh, evidence that that's the case. The only right response that we can have is to trust God's word as it is rather than the opinions of men. And what category would you put Joseph Smith's words in, according to everything that I just now read, if, uh, if it's not truly um, a restored word? Well, then it has to be the opposite of that, the words of man that therefore would bring down the curses of God upon anyone who would believe that or follow that and certainly upon the one who said it. So anyways, that's quite an aside, but I think it's good to think through that stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, if, if we had more time, we could go into the kind of the nature of what he's doing in the patterns, and we go into the recent research uh, by Haley Wilson Lamone on uh, Smith's uh, plagiarism of the Adam Clark Bible commentary or commentary on the Bible. But just as two quick examples Right, I and mean, we already mentioned just the obvious one in Romans, right, where uh, Paul's making the clear gospel point that God justifies the wicked. He justifies the ungodly, and Joseph Smith says justifies not the ungodly. That's a mm-hmm. theological change. Yep. Or in this book of Revelation, here's an example where he'll flip, right? So in Revelation 1.6, he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. That's KJV. Of course, in when he changes that, he does a grammatical change. Seems harmless enough, right? Where um, he uh, let's see right here made his kings and priests unto God, comma his father. <clears throat> now, if you those who know Joseph Smith's last sermon in the Grove, he actually totally forsakes his own fixing, goes back to the. The English ambiguity of the KJV, it's not the original 1611, I think it's like the Laney 1729 or something like that. But God and his father and says, oh, see, John's telling us about 
the grandfather, in other words, you have the, yep. Jesus's grandfather. Um, so yeah. you have Jesus, Heavenly Father, God, and his father, grandfather. So, you know, he'll just change this. Or how about the John 118 one? We didn't have time to even get into it in the um, John 1 episode, where it says, no man has seen God at any time, right? The unique God or the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He, once again, he... Because of his own experiences and how he interprets them and his own prophetic consciousness and the authority that he sees as at least as binding as the texts, mm-hmm. probably more, um, he he's like, this is incompatible with my experience, right? So he changes that to, and no man hath seen God at any time except, except he hath been born record of the Son. So yeah. so he he'll change it to make room for what he sees as the truth. Yep. So just know if you're a credo Christian out there listening, uh, when the LDS church says we're studying the new Testament this year, there's a big old asterisk, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because this is not something that we've just seen a few times. Every lesson, every lesson. It's like, look at the JST for this, right? Mm -hmm. Look, look at what Joseph Smith had to say. How He clarifies or restores. David Ridges will talk about, look what was left out of the Bible or was taken out of the Bible. Look what Joseph Smith is. Yep. Any evidence? No, just the assertion. And if you're LDS, we would just lovingly tell you that go, go look at the evidences of false prophets and uh, Joseph Smith perfectly fits the description again and again and again on, on every count. And uh, th- think about who you're following. Yep. Are you following the one true God who has given us his truth in his word, which is his covenant document? Um, or are you following a God that's been fag- fabricated by a, uh, a false prophet who is leading, leading you astray and has led millions of people astray as well? Um, and how do you know? For sure. You know? So for sure, just, may, may I uh, leapfrog in from that into yep, for sure something? Just make sure we can get it in. Yep. Really quickly, of course, if they had didn't realize it already, the official LDS position is that Jesus will come back, and of course, okay, yes, we agree, and usher in the millennium. So they are officially premillennialist, um, meaning he'll come back and usher in the millennium. Yep. And according to Bruce R. McConkie, restore polygamy then. But uh, which That's would make right. more sense if he was at least married and, as the early Mormon leaders taught, a polygamist. Yeah. Um, even making which, the parable the did, talents did about Bruce polygamy. R. make that claim or maybe not? <laughs> he avoided that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'll put in the show notes if you want to hear general authorities from yeah. the early church. So, so here's about, why we're getting into this, by the way Matthew 24 yeah. and 25. Go read those texts. These are apocalyptic literature, like we already mentioned. And most of this lesson is focused on the Savior's second coming. So, Skyler, what, what all do they teach regarding the second coming of Christ? Right. Well, they have in their Gospel Principles Manual, and I'll, I'll link to this as well, what will Jesus do when he comes again, right? So he'll cleanse the earth. He will judge his people. He will usher in the millennium. Uh, they, they even talk about the righteous being caught up to meet Jesus at his coming, a kind of like a tribulation rapture kind of stuff. Uh, uh, he, his coming will begin the millennial reign. Um, he will complete the first resurrection. We haven't gotten into this, but... I don't know. At some point we will. Where They have several phases and different resurrections and stuff like that. We'll get into that. He will take his rightful place as king of heaven and earth. There's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And they, although they mentioned the ascension at the beginning, they don't have a theology of the ascension. So 
it, right. I and I want to be fair to Christian premillennialists. Would they say that Jesus is ruling and reigning now? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a difference between all Christians. Then I know I know Amil and Postmill will both emphasize the fact that he's on the throne now, yeah. and we're just waiting for his reign to be visibly seen <clears throat> in the world. So. Anyway, they, and then, of course, the, they always have this emphasis on being ready and what you need to do to be ready. But here's the thing. This is how we can tie it into what you just read about the Scripture, and it's just such a perfect segue, is they'll say, well, you need revelation for now. You need you need these experiences and these prophets and how useful it is to be told what you need. Well, let's, let's go into their history of prophetic revelation mm-hmm. in terms of the second coming of Jesus, shall we? Um Joseph Smith several times predicted the second coming of Jesus. Yep. Didn't happen. Um, so he, uh, <laughs> to, I, I'll put more specifics in, but I mean, a lot of it was connected to the end of the United States as well. There was this expectation based on the Book of Mormon of what one scholar calls the Amerindian apocalypse, that the Native Americans would, uh, you know, once the Book of Mormon came out, all the Native Americans would wipe out the unbelieving Gentiles that didn't accept the Book of Mormon. And uh, Parley Pratt, an apostle of the early Mormon church in 1838, said within five to ten years they would start seeing this. And um, where, that, where did that prophecy come from so originally? He, well, he, so it's in a couple places. Okay. Um, but but he, the LDS leaders were affirming it. Yeah. It's true, basically. Well, right. And there's going to be several. I've got gotcha, over a gotcha. dozen here. But his. Um, Sorry. His voice of warning in 1837 um, talks about stuff like this as well. And he, I mean, he talks, uh, I mean, th- this, this in terms of his popularity, there were 30 editions of a voice of warning by the end of the century. Wow. I mean, Parley Pratt's A Voice of Warning was so popular among the early mm-hmm. LDS and it was around that time when he's talking about it, people reading the book. Um, this was there. Eliza Arsenal has a quote about it as well. Yeah. Um, and th- there was clearly this expectation that the Native Americans would rise up and overthrow mm. all the unbelieving people that didn't accept the Book of Mormon. And then the new Israel and the new Jerusalem and the new temple. You know, we went into that, DS84 yeah. and all that. Such, such an, like an American-centric Way of thinking again. And it still is. Wow. Yeah, and, and there was a talk even recently that uh, we didn't get to. Maybe I can cover it in a bonus episode that still has that, the, the idea of the LDS culture is the eternal culture. Yeah. How, how weird is that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think Christianity is a culture. Yeah. I think it's the work of God purifying and reforming any culture. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird. Um so we have January 4th, 1833. Um, we have March 30th, 1834. We have Joseph Smith in May 1843 saying, a few years the U.S. government be utterly overthrown and wasted. Uh, how about this? Uh, February 1835. These are all Joseph Smith. Uh, J- Joseph Smith said, 56 years should wind up the scene. <laughs> February 1835, 56 years should wind up the scene. In April 1843, he said, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God and let it be written. It's kind of funny. Why let it be written, Joseph? Uh, Why does that matter? (laughs) He can't get away from Christianity. He can't get away from a tech-centric culture. 
Anyway, let it be written, so he prophesies in the name of the Lord God, that the Son of Man will not come in the heavens till I am 85 years old, 48 years hence, or about 1890. And this is going to be a consistent theme in 1890-91. All the general authorities are expecting the second coming, and that's right around the time that's right after the Reynolds opinion. Yep. And right after Reynolds' opinion, and the federal government is coming in and tightening down enforcement of the anti-bigamy laws, this is when you see tons of uh, prophecies. Really quickly, I, I thought this was a really f- some really fascinating work by Gregory Prince. He looked at um, 62 patriarchal blessings given by Joseph Smith Sr., so Joseph Smith's dad, who was patriarch of the church between 1835 and 1844. 37% of those promised the recipient that he or she would not die before Christ's second coming. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten into patriarchal blessings We'll hit it sometime, but they're personalized scripture from a patriarch of the church to individuals, and it's to be treated as scripture for you. Yeah, it you might call it customized counsel, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the rich young ruler stuff, right? Um, so I mean, and, and this just continues. There's um, Wilford Woodruff said right after the Reynolds ruling that there would be no United States in the year 1890. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, if God's going to end polygamy, he's going to come save his people. He's going to come save, right. So that we can keep on practicing the way that we should. Right. Uh, Mormon apostle, this was Brigham Young's right-hand man. Why am I doing this? This isn't close. I want to say, you're going to tell us all the time how much you need these prophets. Mm -hmm. And look, on one of the most important doctrines, Yeah. look how wrong they were. Yeah. Um, Heber C. Kimball was like Brigham Young's right-hand man. Yeah. And he said... Um, he would not suffer death before Christ's second coming. Um, he died June 22nd, 1868. Um, under the spirit of prophecy, that's a quote, Apostle Wilford Woodruff, under the spirit of prophecy, told British converts they would remain on earth until the coming of Christ. Uh, Parley Pratt even wrote uh, Queen Victoria about this, uh, by the way. Uh, Parley, our friend Parley Pratt. Um, so you have... A Millennial Star article called The the Coming of the Messiah, um, 7th of April, 1879, once again, referring to the Reynolds ruling we talked about last time, in which it reiterated Joseph Smith's 1835 prophecy. This is DNC 130. It's still there. DNC 130. That 56 years should wind up the scene, concluded this would take us to the year 1891. And the article recounted Smith's second prophecy of seeing the face of the Son of Man should he live to be 85, ascertaining that this would be in 1890 or on the verge of 1891. Now, many church leaders, of course, had this view. So you had church publications. You had an official edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, 1879 to 1880, or Orson Pratt. So not just the Brigham Young faction with Hebrew C. Kimball. Here's the Orson Pratt. He can put footnotes in the official edition of the DNC, canonized at the October 1888 General Conference, where it stated under section 130 that the Joseph Smith's 85-year millennial prophecy, right, is near the end of the year 1890. He then cross-referenced the revelation to see the prophecy of Joseph uttered 14th of March, 1835, okay, that we already referenced. There was no doubt the Son of Man would make his appearance in 1890-91. Uh, how about this? Wilford Woodruff presented a revelation to the brethren. It was accepted as the word of the Lord that said the end is nigh. That, that's pretty clear, yeah? Yes. <laughs> yes. How about at an 1881 conference in Manti, Wilford Woodruff 
a promise that thousands of the children of the Latter-day Saints would not die but would see the Savior come. The same year, St. George would have told the saints, the coming is near, right? That many here would not taste death, okay? Uh, he, these pronouncements confirm members' ongoing gospel discussions about, once again, this prophecy, it being then February 14th, 1835. I'm reading from a book called As a Thief in the Night. The documents several of these. I, I just, how about this? May 1888, at the dedication of the Manti Temple, Wilford Woodruff, then senior apostle, instructed the other apostles that we are not going to stop the practice of plural marriage until the coming of the Son of Man. And Apostle John W. Taylor, who was considered by some the prophet of the Twelve, told members in southern Utah they would live to see the Savior come. Okay, In his position as church president, Woodruff continued to tell members that many living in 1889 would, while in the flesh, see Christ come in clouds of glory. I could go on. Yeah. I could go on. This isn't close. Those were false prophecies. Yeah. And they Clearly. were false prophets. Yeah. They were false prophets. What, 140 years ago? Mm-hmm. Jesus was supposed to come back. Right. Not anymore. Right. And, I, I mean, I, trying to think of even how... To, it's just Joseph Smith changing scripture, false prophecies, all these false promises. I, I know someone personally who was told... Uh, in their patriarchal blessing, they would see the city of Enoch come back, and the, you know this kind of stuff, and they're dead. Yeah, by by a patriarch, and that's supposed to be scripture. And we wonder why so many people, when they leave, become agnostic atheists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's take a little bit of time here just to look at the parable of the ten virgins, because I think yeah. we may not get to the parable of the talents, but at least the parable of the ten virgins has a good lesson for us on this. Uh, but, of course, they interpret this as saying we must be ready for the Savior's second coming. And uh, so let me just read the parable, and then we'll get it get into this very quickly. Uh, this is from Matthew 25, verses 1 to 11. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will, be, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Okay, how is the LDS Church going to interpret this? Well, let me just read from David A. Bedner's comments in the additional resources. Consider the oil to be the oil of conversion. Now, we've talked about what conversion is. For them, it's not an objective act of the Holy Spirit upon us that changes us apart from anything that we do. No, conversion is the is the the process that happens by the works that you continue to do mm-hmm. in your salvation. So consider the oil to be the oil of conversion. Were the five wise virgins selfish and unwilling to share? Or were they indicating correctly that the oil of conversion cannot be borrowed? Can the spiritual strength that results from consistent obedience to the commandments be given to another person? Can the knowledge obtained through diligent study and pondering of the scriptures be 
conveyed to one who is in need? Can the peace the gospel brings to a faithful Latter-day Saint be transferred to an individual experiencing adversity or great challenge? By the way, Utah is one of the top uh, states for depression, so I don't know what peace they're referring to. The clear answer to each of these questions is no. As the wise virgins emphasize properly, each of us must buy for ourselves. These inspired women were not describing a business transaction. Rather, they were emphasizing our individual responsibility to keep our lamp of testimony burning and to obtain an ample supply of the oil of conversion. This precious oil is acquired one drop at a time, line upon line, and precept upon precept, patiently and persistently. Okay. Um, Carson, D.A. Carson, comments, I think, helpfully here, and uh, he writes this. The plot turns on the bridegroom's delay. The foolish virgins do not forget to bring oil. Rather, the delay of the bridegroom shows they did not bring enough. The oil cannot easily apply to good works or Holy Spirit. It is merely an element in the narrative showing that the foolish virgins virgins were unprepared for the delay and so shut out in the end. In a real sense, it is the bridegroom's delay that distinguishes the wise from the foolish virgins. Any interpretation that ignores the central element of the story is bound to go astray. So here's the point. Carson is drawing our attention to the fact that understanding, as the LDS Teaching says the oil to be conversion is reading into the text something that is simply not there. Uh, But instead, the whole point of the parable is the wise are prepared for a delay in the coming of the bridegroom. Um, So there's a comparison being made to those who were not prepared for a longer amount of time between the coming of the bridegroom. Um, And so they weren't, you know, prepared to wait. And I think the, the point that's being made here is that in the second coming of Jesus, believers are to be eager for his coming. Uh, but I think implicit in the primary meaning of this text is that you need to be ready if it's, if it's going to cause you to wait. That's why those who had the extra oil were the ones who were... Uh, of course, celebrated and were the ones who made it in versus those who thought that they were going to have enough because it was going to, the bridegroom's going to come in a, in a sooner amount of time. And so the obsession, I think, of, uh, you know, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, 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 um, is a danger no matter what circle you're in. And I think the parable of the ten virgins teaches us very practically, be prepared to wait for Jesus to come. Be, be prepared to be faithful in the meantime as we await his coming. That doesn't mean that we're not looking forward to it, anticipating it, saying, come Lord Jesus. But it just means it could be longer than we expect, right? right. And this isn't something added later after a failed parousia or whatever. You have this in Mark as well. We don't have time to go into it. But even with the fasting passage in Mark 2, right? Then I go away, then they will fast. Mm-hmm. There's this hint of the church age um, yeah. as well. It's yep. not just Matthew reacting retroactively, which you're going to get on with the Bardermans of the world. Yep, for sure. All right. Any last thoughts here, Skyler? I do. Just throw on top. Just one thing. For sure. That is at the very front of this, and it didn't fit in neatly, so I'll just do it here. Um, for the seminary manual um, for teachers, there was this section right at the front called Helping Students Have Meaningful 
experiences. Once again, this is the manual for teachers. So this is the advice to them. Remember that your goal as a teacher is not to teach a lesson or cover content. Come back to that. Instead, help students study the scriptures in a way that will help them come to know and follow the Savior. Uh, along with that, uh, down below, this is possible learning activities. Visualizing Jesus Christ's coming. Um, if students were asked to read Joseph Smith Matthew and reflect on the second coming of Jesus Christ before class, consider having them share their thoughts and feelings now. Display the picture above. Okay, They have a picture of Jesus and have white Jesus in heaven, mm-hmm. uh, white, Swedish, capitalist, American Jesus. And it says, display the picture above and ask questions that can help students verbalize their thoughts and feelings on the subject. Listen to what the students share and consider the following material to enhance their experience. Okay. So just as when they say Joseph Smith translation, by translation, they mean not a translation. Yep. Teacher, they don't mean teacher. What they mean, emotional experience coach. Yeah. Or like, yeah. <laughs> I don't, like what, that is an unbelievable line. Mm-hmm. So, Brendan, have you ever been asked to teach Sunday school and been told, now by teach, we don't mean uh, Yeah, don't try teach. to impart knowledge. Like that, <laughs> that'd be really. Uh, yeah. It, that is, it, it's. You have to laugh or you'll cry. It says a lot, though, because as we've been working through these Sunday school manuals, that's a note that we keep coming across. It doesn't oh, yeah. say anything. No. You know? I mean, honestly, the most substance that we find in the Sunday school manual are the subtitles. Yeah. Where they actually try to explain, <laughs> define a little bit of what, you know, so you get one sentence there. And then the additional resources where they'll put some of the apostles or other, you know, leaders who have said something that's a little more teaching oriented, but yeah, it's all just kind of, let me be your spiritual guru guide to help you find your own enlightenment yeah. along, along the path, you know, we're, right. we're just all in this together. Exactly. And, and just thinking, you know, experiences, impressions, inspiration, and then just the fact that for possible learning activities, right. It's not studying the, the text. It's not studying the context. It's not studying or any of that. It's here's look at a picture. Look at a picture to enhance your experience and let us know how you feel. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so sad. No yep. wonder these people, they think, oh, yeah, I'm following the manual. I'm reading my scriptures. Then they go read a Bart Ehrman book and they're like rocked. I mean, they, they don't have any knowledge to combat with yeah like they're, they're not in the battle yeah <laughs> it's it's weird i don't know I, I don't know even how to land it i just i uh honestly i just i'm trying to think of all the people i love who are still in this system yep yeah well yeah. <clears throat> maybe it'd be appropriate just to land with a, a final thought jesus is coming back yes and jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead and the primary judgment that he's going to give if you have been listening to us at all, is not going to be whether or not your works were sufficient. I hope that we have been abundantly clear your works never could be sufficient. The question is going to be whether or not you have trusted in him to be the perfection that is necessary for you to enter into the presence of God. If you have trusted in Jesus and in Jesus alone 
for your justification on the last day, then you have nothing to fear when it comes to his judgment. But if you are trusting in your own works, if you're trusting in the word of a false prophet and false prophets who have led you astray, then you must repent now before it is too late. Because make no mistake, Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, it'll be too late to turn at that point. And so we would just implore you, turn to turn to the true Christ before it is too late. And if you have any questions about that, reach out to us. We'd love to talk further. Thanks for listening.